back to The Rights Pod. In today's episode, I had the honor of sitting down with Dr. Becca Farnham, an environmental peacebuilding researcher and educator, to discuss environmental racism, environmental peacebuilding, and environmental justice in the context of the United States and North Africa. In addition to discussing what these topics mean, she also discussed a little more about her upcoming audit course, Climates of Resistance. All of the links that we discuss in our conversation, including the registration link for her course, will be included in the show notes. You're listening to The Rights Pod. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much again for joining this episode of The Rights Pod. My name is Kira Jasper, and I'm a student at Stanford studying history and the law and minoring in human rights. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Becca Farnham, who describes herself as an activist academic. She is currently serving as Assistant Director for Outreach and Engagement at Syracuse University London, where she teaches classes on sustainability and environmental racism while leading community projects around peacebuilding and the green economy. Past projects have included drafting legal policy for the United Nations, community organizing around environmental rights, and serving a stint at the Obama White House. Becca's teaching focuses on transformative learning, partnering with students to understand and purposefully impact global change in pursuit of sustainable justice. She's also the professor of a new course entitled Climates of Resistance, Environmental Racism and Collective Action, which is open for public audit this semester beginning February 8th. More details on Becca's biography and the course will be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much, Becca, again, for taking the time to sit down with me to discuss topics related to environmental justice, environmental racism, and all of your work. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you wear so many different hats, um, and I wish that we could sort of dive into all of the work that you do, um, but one of the most interesting and I guess newest and relevant projects that you're taking on right now is related to your course, um, The Climates of Resistance, Environmental Racism and Collective Action. Um, And sort of given the timing of this podcast and sort of this moment that we're in as a world and especially in the US um, related to the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests and a national reconciliation with race, I wanted to sort of dig into what you mean by environmental racism and the title of your course. Um, And can you define what it is um, and how it permeates in a structural and also an individual level? Yeah, thank you, absolutely. Environmental racism, I would say, is firstly, simply put, a subset of systemic racism, right? So one thing that we know is that racism as it carries out in political arenas in everyday life, in our communities, and and certainly in the way human rights are understood and appreciated and acted upon globally, right? It it is far more than the kind of everyday interpersonal aggressions, right? Of name calling and prejudice and bias, awful as those are, and much as we need to work against them. Um, And it is so embedded in all of our systems. Um, So the way people are able to vote, the way people are likely to get a job at a certain salary, uh, all of these kind of system-wide things that are very rarely any one individual's active intentional decision, right? But continue to create statistics and trends in which certain populations are constantly regularly put down and oppressed in in all kinds of ways. And so environmental racism is really diving into the subset, if you will, of that systemic racism that is related to environmental issues, access to natural resources, the likelihood of 
natural hazard risk and those kind of things. Uh, the concept began uh, very much in the black rights movements as community leaders began to notice and call out the fact that black communities in the US were far more likely to be closely uh, located near pollution, near factories, near contaminated water, and that kind of thing. Race continues to be the number one factor determining whether or not you're going to be exposed to any kind of environmental toxin in the US. That wow. is across virtually every identity factor that we have. Uh, so that comes down to the way we do districting, right? what gets placed where, what gets built where, who gets put where, and all of these things, right? Um, so there is a particular um, kind of acronym, NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y, not in my backyard, uh, which refers to the ease with which certain communities, right, are able to protest, right? Like, I don't want this factory near me. I don't want this high-rise apartment obstructing my view. I don't want to have to live near this particular swamp, all of those kind of things. Uh, but who ends up having the power to say not in my backyard, right, ends up being white communities, socioeconomically well-off communities, men, you know, all of these things, right, the, the things that we know play into systemic oppression, then get carried out in so many kinds of environmental ways. So that's what environmental racism is really trying to pinpoint, right? The, the ways in which systemic racism play out around all of these nature-based issues. Um, Hurricane Katrina is another really great example of this, right? Um, our, our preparedness to disasters, the response that we have to disasters and that kind of thing. We also saw the California wildfires uh, and many of the firefighters are coming from prison camps if we think about the racial disparities within the prison industrial complex and how many of those firefighters are Latinx and black men in particular, that is not an accident, right? And, and that is something that is systemic and needs to be addressed and very much also falls under um, the category of environmental racism. Looking at indigenous communities, the Navajo, the Navajo nation is one of the most uranium contaminated and water poor areas in the entire country. Right. Uh, and continues to be that a huge number of indigenous people around the United States. I, I think a lot of us have this kind of vision in our heads of indigenous reservations as close to nature and, you know, environmental beauty and these kind of things because of the stereotypes that we have uh, and because of the very valuable worldviews that indigenous communities have around the environment, except right, that the lands that they were placed on by the white government um, were very intentionally chosen and you know we're never environmental paradises um, and the infrastructure that continues to exist creates and exacerbates and reproduces environmental inequalities in so many ways uh, so the the class title then the, the main title is climates of resistance uh, which was very purposely chosen to acknowledge the agency and the power of marginalized communities in response to environmental racism. And I think one of the hardest things when we're working in human rights and community advocacy is to walk this really careful thin line between pointing to systemic injustice and calling that out at all times 
while also recognizing and valorizing and uplifting just how much power marginalized communities do have and can take. Uh, and so it very much is a class about environmental racism and collective action, trying to look at all of the ways that that power is being, you know, kind of pushed back at and community organizing is being used to redress these inequalities. Um, I think what ha just happened in Georgia is a really great example of that. Regardless of where you stand politically, the fact right, that Stacey Abrams and the Fair Fright organization have been laying the seeds for absolutely years to make this happen and the amount of community organizing that went into this election uh, and in particular to the special runoff uh, demonstrates just how much intentional energy and strategic action on the part of historically marginalized people can do, right? Even in the face of really disenfranchising systems. And I think it's a call to think about just how much better position human rights would be in around the world, right? If collective action were, were better held up and used and applied as a regular method, right? As well as if all of these incredible community organizers were working in the face of less dramatic odds. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned that Stacey Abrams really worked with minority communities in order to bring out the vote. But what role do you think that white people and people of majorities play in that effort? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think there, there are so many conversations right now about white guilt, white anger, white allyship, all of these kind of things. Those conversations are happening in, in very different ways, um, but also within BIPOC communities, right? Around the role of solidarity and allyship, right? From indigenous communities to black communities, from Asian diaspora to Chinese mainland, right? I mean, all of these kind of things, right? There, there's always going to be some kind of majority minority dynamic when we're starting to kind of look at structures of power and in-group and out-group and that kind of thing. Um, in terms then of collective action, one, I think certainly the majority have a very significant role to play <laughs> for better or for worse. And they always have, right? And women would not have won the right to vote without male legislators, for example, right? Uh, at least not without a very different change to the system <laughs> that would no longer be the system as it were. Um, and so thinking then about how the white community and other majority players um, can take action in this, I think it is critical um, that I, as a white person and, and others uh, who identify as part of a majority community take part in collective action, but also realize that they do not need to lead collective action. Uh, that we, our voices are so constantly and regularly heard and well represented in corridors of power and at least our interests, right? Like even if we don't want to be benefiting from these systems, we still are, right? And, and I think so one, we have to acknowledge that uh, not in a way that is self-flagellating and that's, you know, kind of just stops us from doing anything, but just a realization that that is what's happening right now. And given that power, what do I do with it? Right? And, and what doesn't need to happen right, is for majority communities to go into minority communities and say, hey, let's, be, let's do collective action, <laughs> right? Like you can yeah. join us on this campaign. 
uh, right, but rather majority communities looking at all of the actual, because it's already happening, right? I mean, yeah, all of these initiatives are happening. Environmental defenders around the world, right, are doing incredible things, right? The, the models are there, the people are there, the grassroots organizing, the, the people who have ideas about what needs to change, that doesn't need to be invented, right? What needs to happen is for majority community members who are interested and wanting to help shift the system to, to go and genuinely listen and see what is happening and boost those efforts rather than trying to launch their own. Definitely. Um, couldn't agree more. And part of what is so great about your class is how environmental racism also permeates our education system and the fact that in environmental science we don't learn a lot about these issues or the ways that black communities or communities of color are disproportionately impacted as a professor and as somebody who also studied environmental studies what has your experience been in the way that these issues are talked about if at all um, and what about this course besides its intentional focus on environmental racism is and yeah, what role does this course play in trying to address maybe some of the issues that you that you saw, if if any? Yeah, thank you. It's a really good question. I think firstly, environmental sciences, right? If we take that as kind of a really big umbrella of geology, geography, environmental anthropology, right? I mean, kind of really it runs the gambit from humanities to social sciences to hard sciences. And that is both an incredible strength and a huge weakness and, and potential drama uh, in that one, the hard sciences are so good at pretending and upholding values of no bias, right? And, and divorcing themselves from the scientist, the researcher, the system. And so part of why environmental racism is so rarely talked about in academia and in environmental courses is not just the fact that we're bad at talking about racism because we, you know, that would involve re recognizing our own power dynamics, but also because science itself right, has this desire to not play into that, right? Like it, it needs that lie of mm. we, are, we are separate from that, we're divorced because that's what pure science is, right? And so it's a really interesting game to play, I guess, within, within university corridors is how to point out issues of environmental racism and statistics and the fact that these aren't apolitical without having a colleague or a professor feel like they're being attacked, right? Like their methodology and their approach to their discipline, right, is somehow invalid. Uh, so it's not just that, you know, we're working against white guilt and the drama of recognizing white privilege right now. We also have to do with like science guilt and science privilege and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's definitely one battle. <laughs> um, and that is something where we very much can, can pull from and build on and be grateful to feminist academics, queer academics, disabled academics, right, for really uh, leading that charge and kind of pointing out the epistemology of science and, and where its faults are, um, as well then certainly of, of academics of color and critical race theory um, in kind of aggressively proving scientifically, right, where systemic racism is and, and these kind of things. Um, so I would say, while I was studying in environmental studies at, at various universities, 
I, I would purposely choose the courses that had, you know, women and developing countries and minorities and whatnot in the titles and in the themes, which means that I got a fair bit of this, um, sometimes critically, but I think also the paternalism and the global north-south power divide and all of these kind of things are also embedded in the way we do teaching, right? Um, so mostly I was reading white people talking about brown and black people. Uh, mostly I was reading, you know, like kind of statistics and not stories. And then solutions were generally technical rather than cultural or sociological, right? So it was like, here's a problem, right? Um, too much pollution near this particular black community. So let's engineer an air, air filter, right? Rather than like really tackling the fact that we systemically put black people near pollution. And so I think both of those really stuck with me as I began doing doctoral research in the Middle East and North Africa and was working with local organizations who were doing collective action in response to various kinds of environmental conflict and environmental needs. And just the absolute paradox, I think, between what was regularly talked about and taught in Western university spaces and what funding was focused on from a foreign policy and aid perspective versus what the amount of ingenuity that was happening, right? And the amount of change that was happening and the amount of creativity that was happening. And, and I, this course is really then wanting to kind of showcase that um, and get out of that, bit of that problematic paradigm. Um, so a few ways that that happens in the course, uh, the reading list is entirely BIPOC produced. So black, indigenous and people of color. Um, a few uh, white women and disabled advocate co-authors have snuck in, which is okay. <laughs> I also, again, am a white queer woman. Um, so part of it was just like, okay, like the white ally voice is pretty well represented in this course. There's the professor, right? Curating everything. Uh, and so, you know, the, the kind of least I can do is make sure that every other voice, right, is kind of representing and pulling from another population and that kind of thing. And it was, it was a challenge and how difficult that was is in and of itself an indicator of environmental racism and systemic injustice, right? Um, just like the demographics of who is producing knowledge in university advocated ways and that kind of thing, um, it, that it should not be so difficult um, to find scholarship for marginalized communities about marginalized communities, right? <laughs> uh, and it's not that marginalized communities are not producing amazing scholars and know how to do research. That is not the problem, right? The, yeah. the problem is the way that it is uplifted and shared and, and published and valued and funded and those kind of things. Um, so one is that uh, yeah, the, the reading list is BIPOC, but it also is very focused on case studies of successful and ongoing collective action, right? So we're introducing mm -hmm. the problems and then immediately pointing to the kinds of ingenuity and creativity that marginalized communities around the world are using in response um, on both kind of like everyday fix it for the people right here levels and on systemic advocacy levels. And we are using a lot of art and humanities as part of that reading list. Um, so Every Day has a visual art piece created by a BIPOC artist around the world that kind of reproduces and reflects the theme. Uh, Every Day starts with a song warm up or a poem and those kind of things. Um, 
different creation myths, those kind of like, just there is such a rich wealth of content and knowledge that is shared in a variety of ways. And yes, absolutely, we have academic, you know, peer reviewed <laughs> journal articles and books and all that kind of thing. But the way environmental knowledge and relationships are shared and captured and, and used to affect change right, is so much wider than that. And it's been a lot of fun pulling those together and learning so much myself uh, as I've been diving into the world of environmental art activism as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think I love that your course is including art activism and seeing activism as more than just like a one-dimensional type thing, such as community organizing or protesting, but really exploring all different areas. Um, and again, all of the details for the course, the course website will be in the show notes. Um, and I really encourage people that are interested in this topic to sign up. It's going to be amazing. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. Kind of on that note, um, so you've done a lot of work in the MENA region, and I think that it's important to note, as you've already pointed out, that environmental issues are talked about um, is very white-centric. And so I was curious if you could discuss more about your work in the MENA region, why you were there, how you got interested um, and started studying it, and yeah, what you feel has been some of the similarities and differences in the case studies that you've, um, that you've studied. Great, thank you. So my main research topic, if you were describing two words, would be environmental peace building. Environmental peace building is both an academic kind of subfield uh, and a practitioner toolkit, I would say. On the scholarly side of things, it's the theory of how the environment conflict and cooperation intersect, right? um, often in terms of kind of conventional armed warfare. Uh, so think of kind of off-quoted statements of, you know, like the next war in the Middle East will be over water instead of oil and those kind of things, right? The idea that we fight over the environmental resources and that kind of thing. But also increasingly also scholarship looking at grassroots diplomacy, interpersonal conflict, community justice, right? And kind of the, the smaller scale ways in which the environment can in increase or decrease tensions between people. Uh, and on the practitioner side of things, right, we know those intersections are not all negative or violent or focused on conflict, right? There's also a cooperative mechanism. Uh, so the practitioner toolkit of environmental peace building is this idea, this logic, this argument that we can use the positive potential of the environment for community building and conflict resolution, uh, that this can be an avenue for diplomacy and that the environment can be an entry point to peacemaking. The classic example of this is how I was introduced to environmental peace building. Uh, while an undergraduate at Michigan State University, I studied abroad in Israel and Palestine and met EcoPeace, who are a community organizer uh, who have offices in Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, uh, and are completely co-run by all three of those offices. They always have three directors representing the three nations and that kind of thing. And one of their flagship projects involves Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian youth in water co-management. Uh, so rather than, you know, kind of ignoring the fact that this is political, right, or kind of like saying like, oh, we'll just, you know, water, it's, it's safe, you know, and that kind of thing, they lean into the fact that water is transboundary, that it is a shared resource, that, you know, kind of like it or not, you know, you're drawing from the same aquifer and that kind of thing um, to do really intentional community management uh, that, you know, and just acknowledging this shared dependency 
and, and using that as an entry point um, for relationship building, which then, you know, hopefully can have other spillover effects and that kind of thing. And there are certainly critiques of this, you know, in terms of the fear of whitewashing uh, and how, you know, is this kind of, you know, furthering or trying to erase power asymmetry and that kind of thing. And, and certainly the, from a scholarly level, the evidence base around environmental peace building and what works and what doesn't on both local and national scales is continuing to be developed. Uh, but certainly early indicators from organizations like EU Peace that are doing this are, are really promising. Uh, and we certainly do see that the environment in the same way on um, that music and sports are used often um, as platforms for peace building and interpersonal diplomacy. Um, the environment is one that can really do that as well on, on the personal to person relationship building. And then what's particularly exciting is how much the environment kind of transcends scale and can kind of do that back and forth between international warfare and local communities and that kind of thing. Uh, so I came to all of this <laughs> through work uh, in the Middle East around that topic. And for my PhD, I had the privilege of living for a short time in Kuwait, Lebanon, and Morocco, working with three different community environmental groups who were using the environment in very different ways and partnering with nature in very different ways to do community building in, in various ways and, and push against um, racial tensions and that kind of thing. Uh, so in Kuwait, I worked with the Kuwait dive team who are marine conservationists they got their kind of really big start in the wake of the Iraq war uh, when Kuwait was invaded and absolutely everything was bombed, uh, including a lot of boats and uh, military equipment directly onto the coral reefs. Uh, little known fact, the Gulf actually has gorgeous coral. Uh, really? We don't tend to, you know, tour to the Gulf in the same way we do to say Australia's Great Barrier Reef, uh, but the diving's absolutely glorious. Uh, but in the wake of the Iraq war, the coral reefs were absolutely decimated. And this team of amateur scuba divers taught themselves how to salvage and went and cleaned up the war debris wow. uh, from, from their reefs. This was their form of patriotism. This was you know, what they wanted to do with re rebuilding in, in the wake of conflict. They were supported by the government and, and started to build formal relationships with the Navy and that kind of thing. And, and very much because salvage diving is such a niche skill set, uh, they became one of the world's best teams for this and have been invited by other governments and other communities to come help them do salvage dives and lift boats and, and all kinds of things. Wow. And so in the wake of this, right, because that was now 30 years ago, um, they have matured into a really successful environmental volunteering organization. They host beach cleanups for school kids every week where they give a little bit of a lecture about the importance of ocean conservation and the kids all go do beach cleanup and you know compete with who can pick up the most rubbish and all that kind of fun stuff um, they do this kind of diving diplomacy right by going to dive shows and, and working with other country governments for training and that kind of thing uh, and one of the the messages that the divers kind of keep repeating uh, when, I, when I work with them is we know what you, right? So, so Arabs know what you, the West think of us and we're wanting to tell you a different story, right? So there's this group who are then using diving and their marine conservation, right? As this very intentional work against Islamophobia and uh, Arab stereotypes and that kind of thing. And it's really led to a lot of multilateral relations um, 
between both, both them people to people wise and also the governments um, just given environmental diplomacy and that kind of thing. So a really fantastic case study, a really positive case study, I think of how public engagement in environmental cleanup after armed conflict can lead to so many more spinoffs, right? And in another five years or so, virtually every 20 something in Kuwait will have been through this curriculum of the beach cleanup, right? And what that's going to do for natural, national cultural shifting, I think is just really amazing. Uh, in Lebanon, I worked with the Media Association for Peace, who are peace journalists who are running a special project on environmental peace journalism. Uh, so wanting to make sure that nature got a bigger voice in journalistic spaces. And in particular in media, uh, excuse me, in Lebanon, virtually all of the media outlets are tied to one of the political sects, which are tied to religious sects. And there are very few truly independent sources of journalism. Um, so this group serve as a watchdog and a training organization. And are, we're running this really special program looking at the intersections between environment resources and peace as journalists could kind of help further that. And in particular, refugee rights uh, and, and access to that. Um, and then many people may remember the garbage crisis of Lebanon a few years ago. And now certainly with the Beirut bombing from last year, another form of really problematic um, environmental dangers to populations that you know, certainly had classist and systemic effects on who, on who was most hit and why it was there and you know how, why the risk factor was so high and that kind of thing. Uh, so, so they were shedding light on that. And in Morocco, I worked with Darcy Ahmad who run the world's largest fog harvesting operation, that's FOG, FOG. Uh, Stanford actually is quite close to a FOG harvesting operation, uh, but you all use it to make vodka. Oh, <laughs> There's a I special <laughs> Yes, what? <laughs> There's a, a special distillery that does Hangar One vodka um, that comes from San Fran's FOG. We'll, we'll throw a link to that as well <laughs> in the show yeah. notes, maybe. Um, so, but in Morocco, <laughs> Darcy Hamad has nets. Uh, so these mesh nets at the top of a mountain and as fog clouds pass through the nets, water droplets condense on the mesh uh, and will drip down into collection units uh, and can be distributed. So this is a really fantastic mm. example of indigenous knowledge and engineering, uh, co-creating something really fantastic that is low energy input, incredibly sustainable. Um, so indigenous communities have been doing this for absolutely centuries, um, you know, kind of putting buckets underneath trees to collect dew and kind of condensed rainfall and that kind of thing in areas that are low precipitation but high dew points and that kind of thing. Uh, and this is also some biomimicry. Uh, so the engineering behind really efficient nets comes from spider webs and like the kind of images and ideas of that. Uh, so the, the nets are at the top of this mountain in southwest Morocco, which gets very little rain, but has a massive fog system coming in from the Canary Islands. And Amazi, who are Morocco's indigenous community, um, you may know them as Berber, uh, but the Amazi people in this particular part of southwest Morocco are very under-resourced uh, and do not have the kind of infrastructure, environmentally speaking, that they should be provided by the state. Uh, and that includes running water. 
but this community organization has built these nets, is collecting fresh water from the fog, piping it into Amazie homes for the first time. And similar projects have been done in Chile and Nepal and a few other places around the world. And it's finding, it is very much reducing out migration. It is allowing men who used to go to cities to have to do remittance labor to come back home um, because subsistence farming and that kind of thing is so much more possible uh, and is really, really re revitalizing communities as well as decreasing gender disparities, allowing uh, women to do capacity building and their own economic empowerment as well as have time off, right? Which is something that is very much appropriate um, to use. If you, know, you used to spend five hours a day collecting water, it would be okay to spend an hour of it watching television now instead, you know, the way we certainly get to. Yeah. Just, um, and they're also, you know, kind of just, so they're tackling indigenous valorization and tribal tensions, as well as running an, ethnogra an ethnographic field school, which invites Western university students to go um, take anthropology classes and other field studies. And again, it's like very much reducing uh, the, the North-South divide, Islamophobia, as well as showcasing engineering and technology that is coming from the global south, right? And, and the fact that science knowledge and innovation does not only come from white universities and that kind of thing. Wow, that is incredibly fascinating. And you're writing a book now, right? You're in the editing process of it. That describes a lot of these initiatives, right? Yeah, so the book is looking at the role of the environment in peace building. It is very focused on kind of UN and international interventions in international armed conflict. Uh, so the, the Kuwait dive team are definitely highlighted in kind of the role of public engagement in, in post-war cleanup. Uh, and Lebanon as a country case study is talked about a lot. Lebanon's very much a country that's kind of gotten stuck in peace um, as peace building efforts were so focused on creating a peace treaty and kind of finding some relative level of stability right, that they didn't really redress the systemic tensions that are continuing. Uh, and, and so much of why the Beirut blast happened uh, and the garbage crisis happened was because an incomplete peace process really kind of paralyzed the country um, in this just like, they're, they're so busy not fighting that nothing else is happening because of how fragile the peace is um, and, and the way the kind of peace accords happened. Um, so yeah, the, the book is looking at those um, as well as case studies from uh, the Balkans, South, uh, South Africa, Rwanda, and then also very much pulling in narratives um, from the US and the Black Lives Matter movement to start to tear down this very false dichotomy we have between like post-conflict nation and stable nation, right? And I think, I mean, <laughs> It, we're recording this, this podcast two days after the attempted coup on the Capitol, right? In, in the US where we've seen just how fragile and false this line between, you know, an absolute stable democracy, which will always manage a peaceful transition of power and this kind of thing, right? Versus new and emerging states is. Uh, and, and so part of what the book is trying to convey is one, how integrating the environment and peace building processes can really create a much more sustainable, meaningful, just peace. Uh, and two, we really need to rethink what peace building is and where it needs to happen. 
Definitely. And what I think is amazing about your book, um, which we'll put the link in down below, it, it's not published yet, but when it comes, I think you can pre-order it, right? Through the link. Uh, you, you can go on the interest list. Yeah. yeah. As, as soon as it comes, we'll let you know. <laughs> yes. I definitely recommend reading the book. I've gotten to read chapters of it and it's, it's amazing because it's shaped the way that I see peace building and sort of this approach to human rights. I think a lot of it is focused on the legal aspect or community reconciliation, but the context or the, the topic of environmental justice, I think is not as often used. And obviously it depends on the area where that might be more of a priority or a better mechanism than others. But I think in general, I mean, in most of these areas where there is conflict, it's because of the environment. And yet that is not the tool that is most used or used to the extent that it should be. So I, I'm very grateful for you um, for educating me about this um, and excited for other people to read your book um, in addition to looking more into your work and hopefully taking the class. Just kind of as a, as a wrapping up. So we're, this is January 8th, 2021 that we're recording this podcast and yet so much has happened <laughs> in just eight days. And this is on top of a year that <laughs> was just, filled with so many unprecedented uh, events. So I guess thinking about all of the trauma that has happened, but also hopefully a new path forward, what is giving you some hope about humanity's ability to take effective action around environmental justice? Thanks. Yeah, it's a really great question. I am regularly mocked for being excessively optimistic. Uh, which I think is probably just partially a defense mechanism for what I study, right? <laughs> we have to be able to get yeah. <laughs> But also, I mean, that I do think that that hope is real and it comes from someplace right? and, and it comes from the strength of communities that are demonstrating you know, just how incredible we are. Uh, I think too, human intelligence got us into this mess human intelligence can get us out of this mess. Uh, we, we need human empathy and human awareness as well. Uh, but it's one thing that really gives me hope is that we don't have to reinvent this, right? We have models for what healthy human environment relationships look like. We have models for what healthy human power dynamics look like, right? And, and all it really takes is for us to better identify and valorize the systems and the worldviews of often marginalized voices, indigenous communities, women, queer disabled voices, and these kinds of things, right? Who know very much, right? What it is like to be marginalized, but also have themselves recreated and built from different ways of, of interacting with, with each other and with the world. Uh, and so if we can amp those up a bit, I think we'll actually be in quite a good place. The other thing that I think 2020 and these first eight days of 2021 or, you know, December 39th, 2020 is perhaps we're in right now, uh, really showcased is just how interconnected issues of racism, gendered patriarchal structures of power, uh, climate justice, Etc. Like these issues that are all so huge and can be so scary to think about when we realize just how big the problem is. But we've also seen just how elaborately inter interconnected they are. And rather than worrying me, that actually really gives me a lot of excitement 
in terms of that also means like how many more people are working on climate justice if we think about climate justice as also being tied to anti-racism and gender and disability rights? How many more tools do we have to fix systemic racism if we draw in right from all of these other bits of action that have been happening for ages. Um, and, and so the more we see these as interplaying, right, the more that actually gives us to tap into from, from a power position for collective action. Um, and that's really what climate of resistance is about. Yes, it's a class, but it's also really trying to highlight and create a cultural shift in, in what we're paying attention to. Thank you so much again, Becca, for taking the time to sit down with me today. If you're interested in taking her community audit course, Climates of Resistance, or learning more about any of the topics that we discussed today, you can find those links included in the show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, you're listening to The Rights Pod. <laughs>